You're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, which you can also access in text form at cortezcurrents.ca. Today we present part two of a Cortez Current special feature, Cortez at Ferry Creek, in their own words. This story will be told in a series of half-hour segments. All of the segments will be available as podcasts on cortezcurrents.ca for your listening convenience. Most people are probably aware of the protest and blockade at Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island. For over a year, forest defenders have blocked a logging road to prevent logging company Teal Jones from cutting intact old-growth areas. For this special feature, I did a little oral history with seven local people who went to Ferry Creek to join that blockade. After a public appeal for interviewees, I managed to schedule recording dates with Margaret, Erin, Caitlin, Maya, and Danny from Blue Jay Lake Farm, and Cease and Christine from Whaletown. Their voices have been woven together to create a narrative from multiple points of view. I'd like to thank our interviewees sincerely for taking the time to tell their stories. I hope that this series will convey something of how it felt to be there, on the ground at Ferry Creek. And I hope our listeners will find these first-hand accounts as fascinating and as revealing as I did during interview. In this second episode, I ask our friends and neighbors about life in camp at Ferry Creek. What did they actually do while they were there? What was it like? And at that time, headquarters had been there, well-established for quite a long time. And there were a lot of people still in camp. There were a lot of people flowing through camp. And there was, you know, a roster and a call out for help every day and a whiteboard to sign up on. And I just jumped in and just immersed myself in the, the daily happenings of, of headquarters. You got to the info place and it had somebody, it was ma'am 24 hours a day. And, and there were stacks of information and answers to any question that you might have. And you went up the road past that and you got to the kitchen. It was, it was a marvelous kitchen. There was lots of room and shelves and cooler and dishes and everything for a heck of a lot of people. Yeah, and across on the other side of the road was where all the donations were, food donations were coming in. And then there was a fork in the road and you went down there on your right-hand side, there was all of the hardware, you know, be it shovels or tools, whatever was needed, was in there and you carried on down past that. Like there, like there were times one week I was there and they'd ask for people to donate food and there was a lot of people just passing through and donating a lot of food and a lot of equipment and there was a extreme generosity with that. There were like some local people who supported the cause and they would bring deliveries in things, you know, every couple of days. There was a media tent and they had a generator going and internet connection set up and you could get out to your loved ones that way or the media people could send out their information from there but you know there was and in fact there was a second kitchen under construction with the idea that winter was going to come and it needed to be 
more functional in fall weather. So I could always find something to do there that felt useful, like feed people, like be at the information booth or the at the uh, welcoming committee at the front end. You know, that 5 p.m. circle each day to figure out the, the, the tasks for the next day and who's going to do what, take responsibility for it. Somebody would lead, somebody would volunteer to facilitate that meeting each day. The camp was, for the most part, very, very clean. And every now and then uh, that would start to slide sideways and there would be a circle and it would get smartened up real fast. Even in the big original headquarters camp, one day I took a garbage bag and I just said, well, I got a couple hours here. I'll just wander around. And I, I, I couldn't find anything to put in the garbage bag. You know, a couple of cigarette butts, you know, and, and they were in the designated smoking areas. There's a few like really big rules there that are, we don't break those rules. Like the non-alcohol and no drug zone. That's a big one. Like if you decide to consume alcohol or drugs, then you're not welcome, you know, and that's just the fact. But it, those are really difficult conversations to have. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, what, what are some of those rules for keeping the camp healthy and in well, good spirits? Yeah, the alcohol, no alcohol, no drugs is a big one. And the no violence no is violence. the other one. Mm -hmm. Even if you're being violent towards other protesters, like any sort of violence, even as far as like, if you're tampering with the police's equipment, um, that's a no-go, you know? If you're spiking trees, also a no-go. The second time I was there, I, I got involved with some construction, and that was fulfilling. Altering the, altering the capacity of helicopters to land was fun, and that led to some interesting interaction with the police, but they were up in the air, and they couldn't land anymore where we were, so... They got upset and flew away. So my friend who was there was on the building crew mostly, so to hang out with her would be involved in building projects. One of my most memorable times, this will probably stick with me, was just seeing the building raves that happened when people would bring out pretty big sound systems, like way, way out in the bush, like hike them in and set them up and be DJing while 40 people are digging just taking turns using two or three shovels to dig trenches and the way that building happens there is pretty interesting because it's like it's like a hit workout like you just do like three minutes of the hardest work that you can possibly do and then there's 10 other people waiting and eager to like jump in and then give it their ultimate burst of energy and then they take a break and so it's you have a lot of people not a lot of tools and just like you're using the most energy that you can and like I building is all not always like that but Often when they have like the building parties, you get a lot of work done. And then as soon as the trench is built and the dragon is concreted into the bottom of it, someone brings their sleeping bag and hops in and goes to sleep at the bottom of it as the sun comes up. Because if the RCMP find a trench that's dug and not occupied with someone, then they just destroy it or fill it in. So all that work is gone. So explain that to me as someone who wasn't there, you're digging a trench and what are you putting in it that a person is sleeping in? Yeah. So at a time that I was there and like at this building rave that it was, I really thinking of, cause it was just such a wild scene to come out and see like all of these people in the middle of the night, just like digging as hard as they can and dancing and partying and having a great time. At that time they were finding that the 
this was up at Waterfall Camp, that to build like a four to six foot deep trench, kind of like a grave, and then you put a hole in the side and cement in a sleeping dragon, like something for someone to lock their arm into with a chain. So it's like a deep coffin-like trench or grave-like trench with a pipe going out the side or into the bottom with various things to make it kind of harder to get someone out of there. And you try to make it as comfortable as possible because sometimes the police strategy is just to wait people out. Mm-hmm. So you people are spending days lying in these things, lying in these trenches, waiting until as long as they can to just buy a little bit more time and a little bit more time. In the early morning, there was a call out for people to go to the blocks that had been set up. And they were wanting to have someone like myself, who was an older person and clearly, you know, fairly, you know, mainstream, respectable. They wanted to have somebody in my stature being willing to put myself in a block and be willing to be arrested. And I had decided that I was willing to do that. And so somebody who was organizing the placement of people put me with a group of three other women who were all, you know, (laughs) at least half my age. And it was a really beautiful, you know, 30, 48 hours that we had together. And it turns out that one of the young women had actually spent eight months here at Linnea Farm as an apprentice. So we had some commonality there. And the other young woman that I connected with was from Salt Spring. And she led a community choir and I've been participating in a community choir here and we had a lot of songs in common. So we became known as the singing nuns and we sang, we sang all day long, beautiful songs. And so my experience of being in a hard block was very different from many people. And I think we just established that place of clarity and um, joy and purpose for being there for the trees. And we sang when the police would walk past us and we sang as they walked back down to their spot. I think a lot of people really came into their own like sense of doing more than they ever thought their bodies were capable of doing. And part of that is just like having the community and having a lot of support and having people just tell you how amazing you are all day long and like really helps people bear more than they ever thought that they could physically bear and you get into this kind of like group mentality of like you're doing it for something greater than yourself. I took a 17 and 18 year old up there one time and uh, they sat at the bottom and the top of a tripod for eight hours (laughs) which in the heat which was uh, I know it was a transformative experience for them and when they got back to to where I was just hearing them tell about all that happened there in a very excited upbeat way I treasure that because I know those two young women are going to keep that experience for the rest of their lives and it's going to inform their lives in a really helpful way and I would say like a lot of really deep conversations tend to come up there because you're dealing with all these like big ideas and anytime that there is a conversation there's a lot of space for listening and for truly like making space for everyone's ideas and everyone's communication and like actively listening to that you know like I've had some of the best discussions in my life about environmentalism or about like yeah protesting and rebelling against the system there with people that come from all sorts of different places 
and have a lot of different things to say. I think I touched on the commitment by the people who are there, which was very inspiring. And the relationships, when I talk about relationships, I mean family that I think has developed very deep connections between people and and not to glorify this because once you're there you really understand when they they talk about it being the front line there there is a battle scene and the front line is where the fighting if you want to call it fighting the action is happening is where the resistance is and so i did not really comprehend that until I was there. And then I could see that there really, it was a battle zone and it was the RCMP on one side and the forest defenders on the other side. And uh, that was my first experience of something as intense as that. I guess when I first got there, there was just a lot of momentum and a lot of activity, a lot of different people trying to make things happen. It was kind of easy to get sucked into that energy, you know, to get inspired by it and want to like do a lot of things. There was a lot of space to like fit yourself in based on your skills or what you felt called to do. And I think as time wore on, obviously people got tired police got more intense and violent and, you know, disbanded a lot of camps that were there. So there was less of a communal feeling. There were less people. So there was a lot less. Yeah, there were people who remained, I think, were more tired. It was just everything got harder, heavier, dirtier, wetter. Like it was just, you could tell that it was kind of becoming a slog. And, uh, it was less obvious to me how to help this kind of second time around. Also because I didn't want to have a second arrest. On the ground, you could tell that logging was going to continue based on road building activities, based on industry being up there and people being around and seeing what industry was doing. So if people stayed, it was because they felt that they needed to based on what was happening on the ground. And, you know, I think that's something that's kind of overlooked. It's like, I don't think people want to be there if they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody wants to, like, sleep in the soggy, wet, cold forest for months on end unless they feel that they have to. I was fortunate enough to spend a fair bit of time together with Elder Bill Jones. And he's, it's an understatement to say he's a remarkable human being. He's so gentle. He's speaks with his heart and he speaks speaks with such dignity you know the things that he said to us were a reflection of true leadership in my opinion he 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 just stressed that that what we were doing yes we were we were protecting trees yes we were protecting trees but he said look what we're really doing here what we're really doing is remembering our humanity one one instance in particular that that was quite an experience for me. An outlying camp, not, not one of the high uh, front, front line places up on the mountain, but a, an outlying supply access point was raided by the police. We got word that they were going to raid it. And I had a huge concern because I had just delivered a whole truckload of top quality climbing gear the night before to that camp. And I was pretty freaked out about whether it had, was going to get seized and whether it was up the mountain where it needed to be. So 
anyhow, somebody said, geez, Bill should know this is happening. And, and I said, yeah, I think I know where he is. And I'm going to jump in my car, I'll go get him. So, so I did find Bill and he said, yeah, well, yeah, let's go talk to those fellas. You know, so we went up there and we drove up to the line and he got out and, and I wish, I wish that everybody could hear what he said. He spoke to them for maybe 45 minutes in just a very gentle, dignified way and laid a lot Wait of- Wait a minute, is he talking to the police here or yeah, to yeah, the protesters on the line? Fair enough question, I'm sorry. He's talking to the police. Yeah, we, we drove up to, the, to this new, newly established exclusion zone, which was illegal, of course, like they all were. And there was a bunch of police standing there with no identification badges. And, and instead of that, they had their thin blue line patches. And yeah, not very impressive, but that's another story. So anyway, Bill, amongst other things, was pretty interesting. He, he just said, you know, you fellas, one of these days, you fellas are gonna have to actually grow up and you're gonna have to choose between that uniform you're wearing and your humanity. You're gonna to have to make a choice. And, you know, and he also said, and one day, one day you're gonna get old and you're gonna look back at this time and you're gonna to have to take a look at what side of the story you were on. What, what part did you choose to play? Of course, you know, these guys didn't say anything, but they just sat there and shuffled awkwardly while he gave them an earful. The indigenous leadership there is truly one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Like, there's been many times where, say, I've been at one of these discussions or been at a, a general tactical meeting, and something that can tend to happen, especially because we do make a lot of space for everyone to share their opinions, is that we kind of say things over and over again, you know, and the meeting starts to kind of go in circles. And as soon as you get an indigenous person's voice uplifted within that, it's like it all brings us back together. Like, that is why we're here, you know? That is what we're here to protect, right? And yeah, like I would say having those indigenous voices there is invaluable. Like it's, it brings us all together in a wow. big way. I felt a little exhausted and I felt that I hadn't really touched the trees. I'd spent all my time down in this, this, you know, hub of administration and buzz of people. And I'd never, except for one afternoon where I had gone to one of the forest groves, Avatar Grove. So <clears throat> I went to Avatar Grove and we spent the afternoon visiting two of these very, very spectacular trees that are very well known and then having a wonderful ramble back along the river. And that was the beginning of our time there. And I felt like I really hadn't seen what was happening in the upper camps. We had the good fortune to participate in a circle in the afternoon that um, was hosted by Bill Jones. I had seen footage of him on, on film, but not in person. And there was always an afternoon circle at five o'clock or seven o'clock. And that was the form of communication and the heart of how the business happened. So he wanted to host one of these and he was there with other visitors and, and elders. And it was listening to him speak in his very gentle, very authentic voice about the importance of being there. And, and 
his invitation to us in person that really moved me to a place of deciding to go to one of the upper camps. And people were usually asked to go and they were organized, collected their belongings, their tent or whatever they needed to, to take to the higher camps at the end of a circle. And so there wasn't a lot of time to pull your stuff together. And after the circle was disbanded, I went and sat by the creek for a while trying to make a decision about whether to go or not. And it just really felt very clear to me that it was time for me to go up and see what was happening and get closer to the trees. And so I, of course, didn't have any backpacking gear with me. So I just grabbed the clothes that I had <laughs> and a little bit of food that I had. And there were about 12 of us stuffed into this truck that took us up one of the back roads. And I've done a lot of back road driving and uh, it was as rough as anything I've ever been on. <laughs> and we arrived at the trailhead, the end of the road at about 8.30, quarter to nine. And there were about 20 or 25 of us that were taking supplies into the upper camp. And the supplies were food, materials for building hard blocks, whatever was requested. And we were going to what was called waterfall camp. And so I felt like I had to pull my weight. And so I, I, I carried carried a pretty heavy load in, in a backpack. And by the time we got to the trailhead, you know, it was dark. And there was one other woman with me who was my age. Everybody else was probably in their 30s. And uh, so we both agreed that we would be the tail and we would take our own time. And we had to actually rappel down a rope in the dark. It was quite an experience. And after having done that, I, I would not do that again, but it was, it was like a rite of passage for me. <laughs> so we arrived in the camp about 1130 midnight and it was interesting, but when we were there, there was a call that the police were coming through the camp and everybody wanted to hide some of the materials that were brought in because they weren't something you wanted the police to confiscate. Just recently, actually, during my last stint there, it's been very tough. The last few missions I've been on, there's been a lot of police presence. They weren't successful missions, which makes it hard on the soul, you know. But there was one time where we were all hiking up the road and kind of being followed by, by these police cars. Four police cars, right, with their high beams, like right on us, you know, driving like two kilometers an hour behind us. And I, I really appreciate how much like laughter and silliness like we the the protesters maintain throughout all these like really difficult situations you know I mean so these cops obviously thought we were up to something you know so we would occasionally like get in a big huddle in the middle of the road you know and just like run in four opposite directions just like what are we doing you don't know you know it's like obviously our mission was already bunk they can't really arrest us for just being on the road and they were saying that they were gonna be uh, like arresting us if we didn't get off the road you know, and Amazon was like on the radio being like, all right, those of you building down at the Sacred Garden, go ahead. We got all the police officers distracted here. I thought it was really funny how we kept up this like lively attitude of just like messing around, you know, when we're in these like really serious mm -hmm. sort of circumstances.
You've been listening to part two of Cortez at Ferry Creek in their own words, an oral history with Cortez locals who went to Ferry Creek to join the Forest Defenders. This show airs on Saturdays at 1 p.m. for the next few weekends, with a rebroadcast Wednesday evenings at 5 p.m. In our next episode, we'll discuss the police presence at Ferry Creek and their interactions with the protesters. Just a reminder, the views and opinions heard on this program are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its staff, its membership, or any granting agency, but are those of the writer, producer, and guests. As always, thanks for listening.